So one of the scariest parts about taking care of HIV and hepatitis uh, patients is when their livers start to fail, because we feel like we didn't get trained right in that, and we're worried that we might be doing something wrong. And so it, it's really important for us to understand uh, the, the hepatology, to understand the, the minimal, at least, uh, uh, aspects of hepatology to practice uh, uh, antiviral therapy. So we're really fortunate to have one of the world's authorities, uh, one of the leading hepatologists in the world, and certainly a leading authority on treatment of uh, hepatitis C and decompensated patients, uh, Michael Charlton here to speak to us. And, and Michael's a, a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, going to address this important topic. Thanks. Well, thank you. I'd also like to thank the organizers for putting the, the course together. I had breakfast with Dr. Thomas this morning. We were just talking about hepatology and infectious disease and how it's uh, really a, a tremendous Venn diagram. Uh, and if we have ever had a really sick, ultra-complicated patient, we always do the same thing, which is to get an infectious disease consult. Also, if we're in a hurry, we would do the same thing. You guys take much more time. You never miss uh, anything. So I think patients with liver disease are in great hands uh, when they're in uh, the hands of somebody uh, with expertise in infectious diseases. So these are my uh, conflicts. So for today, I want to go over uh, a number of things. Imagine trying to uh, teach hepatologists infectious diseases in, in 30 minutes. It's, it's something akin to that. Uh, we're going to look at the initial assessment of liver disease. Uh, how do you diagnose cirrhosis? Probably the most important single question that we'll address today. Uh, what is the natural history and prognosis of cirrhosis? Something which every patient with liver disease wants to know. Managing common complications and then other issues, immunizations, medications, et cetera, in patients with uh, cirrhosis. So one of the first questions uh, that I think it's important to address with a, a patient with liver disease uh, who has hepatitis C is to look for the extrahepatic manifestations. Some of these things can be mistaken for uh, drug effects. They can be mistaken for uh, HIV uh, complications. So uh, mixed cryoglobulinemia. Uh, we were talking about patients with renal disease earlier. Cryoglobulinemia is something which is uh, strongly associated with hepatitis C, can cause profound renal insufficiency, dialysis-dependent uh, renal insufficiency, and it responds extremely well to treating the hepatitis C. I've had patients come off of dialysis uh, following successful treatment of their hepatitis C, so an important uh, consideration. Uh, Porphyria cutanea tarda, uh, lymphoma, uh, B-cell lymphoma is uh, fairly strongly associated with hepatitis C infection, type 2 diabetes mellitus, uh, about a fourfold hazards ratio or odds ratio for getting uh, type 2 if you have uh, hepatitis C after adjusting for all other risk factors like weight, lichen planus, vitiligo, uh, and CNS complications, which there can be many, including neuropathies. You've even seen a, a, a ventilation-dependent uh, case of Guillain-Barre syndrome attributed to hepatitis C, which uh, responded to uh, therapy. The natural history of chronic liver disease, most patients with chronic liver disease die from something else. The most common disease of any kind now is fatty liver disease. There are about 100 million people in the country who have fatty uh, liver disease. Uh, it's um, more common than hypertension, uh, type 2 diabetes, et cetera. But it takes around 20 years to uh, develop cirrhosis for those who do develop cirrhosis. Most don't, but those who do, it takes around 20 years for hepatitis C in the largest Prospective study, it was around 23 years on average to get uh, cirrhosis. And then another five to 10 years to get a complication of cirrhosis, so ascites, encephalopathy, uh, et cetera, and the decompensation to death uh, somewhere between one and uh, five years. 
no one really dies of liver disease other than through complications of cirrhosis and portal hypertension. So the most important single question that we were referring to is does your patient uh, have cirrhosis? And the complications will include variceal bleeding, ascites, encephalopathy, jaundice, and uh, liver cancer. Now, traditionally, this was the flow diagram for patients with uh, hepatitis C, uh, really any liver disease. And then the untreated state, or the unsuccessfully treated state, they would progress from early stages of fibrosis or fibrosis stages all the way through to uh, stage three, uh, compensated cirrhosis, decompensated cirrhosis, uh, liver cancer, uh, and or transplant if you're lucky, uh, and then uh, death if you uh, were not lucky. That's totally changed with the advent of the direct-acting antiviral uh, agents. The most common indication for liver transplantation in the United States and the West has been hepatitis C. Since the approval of cefospivir, it's fallen by around 30%, and the steepness of the decline is accelerating, not even close to leveling off uh, at this point. Now, the paradigm of going from stage two to stage three to cirrhosis to decompensation to liver transplant to liver cancer and death, we now know from prospective studies that these are reversible things. We had uh, an international uh, trial database, 600 and something, 23 patients, I think it was, who had decompensated disease uh, who were treated. And we saw about 9% of patients had what we referred to as a total response where they lost uh, ascites and cephalopathy and normalized their labs. So a minority of patients can even have uh, a total response. Now, if you're in the death point, uh, we really, there's, no, there's no chance of coming back. There's not been a credible uh, resuscitation from that for some time. And not a single Yelp review for death yet, so really not entirely sure uh, what happens. Now, hep C and HIV are an interesting interaction. So the most common single cause of death if you have HIV currently are complications of liver disease related to hepatitis C. So hep C related liver disease, the most common cause of death for HIV infected individuals. And it's not just the interaction of liver disease. There's something unusual about hepatitis C. If you overlap hepatitis B and HIV, you don't see anything uh, like the impact. So hepatitis B and HIV co-infected individuals have similar uh, survivals uh, to patients who are HIV mono-infected. Uh, but you can see the uh, significant uh, drop-off in survival for patients uh, who have hepatitis C and HIV uh, co-infection. So does your patient uh, have cirrhosis? Getting back to that question. So quick question, is uh, biopsy essential for diagnosis uh, of cirrhosis? Should be at least a 50% success rate here. So hard to improve upon this, even with the random hit that's exactly correct. It's, it's not necessary uh, for a diagnosis. In fact, the biopsy practice uh, uh, at Mayo Clinic where uh, magnetic resonance elastography was invented has fallen off by around 70, 75% just in the last five or six years. So one of the things that you'll see commonly is that a patient would get an ultrasound uh, of the liver, probably not necessary in younger patients, but in patients above 30 probably uh, deserve an ultrasound as a minimal uh, investigation for somebody with liver disease. And you'll see in the report that the ultrasonographer may say there were parenchymal changes suggestive of cirrhosis. And what they're referring to is this sort of nodular uh, appearance, which is uh, easily apparent uh, on an ultrasound if it's macronodular. Micronodular cirrhosis is a little bit harder to see, but when you see those, that wordage in the report, I think you can pretty much bank on it. I've not seen it be uh, incorrect. 
So it's a histological diagnosis, but in patients uh, with uh, chronic liver disease, whether it's uh, clinical uh, findings, historical findings of the complication of portal hypertension to somebody who had had ascites or variceal bleeding, they have cirrhosis. You really don't need a biopsy in that context. And there are other things. So there's palmar erythema, which is this peripheral uh, redness uh, of the hands. Uh, it's sort of essentially the same basic phenomena that we have with spider telangiectasia. Uh, the, the red spots that everyone gets after the age of 35, Campbell de Morgan or cherry angioma is totally unrelated. And then, of course, uh, ascites. So none of these patients uh, have any suggestion that they don't have uh, cirrhosis. And here's a gynecomastia as well and an umbilical uh, hernia. So these are the uh, guidelines of the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease for how to uh, manage patients or assess patients who are newly diagnosed with liver disease. So again, any of those historical things that suggest a sine qua non for uh, a portal hypertension, no reason to uh, biopsy those. So ascites, encephalopathy, et cetera, uh, if that's a yes, you're done. Uh, if the patient hasn't had those, but they have physical findings that are uh, c compatible with and highly suggestive of cirrhosis, so any of the stigmata, uh, cutaneous stigmata that we uh, described, thrombocytopenia, uh, very common in uh, portal hypertension due to splenomegaly, and impaired hepatic synthetic function, so persistently low albumin. A constellation of these can be uh, more than enough to make a diagnosis of cirrhosis, no biopsy needed. You may have none of these, then you have that ultrasound report that we just mentioned with appearance of nodules or the ultrasonographer confident enough to make the diagnosis, I think that's certainly trustworthy uh, as well. And we're going to come on to magnetic resonance uh, elastography or MRE in just a couple of moments. If none of those things are true, because the risk of liver cancer for patients with hepatitis C is around somewhere between 2 to 4% uh, per year, uh, and for somebody with cirrhosis in general, it's certainly not less than 1.5% per year, and it's an additive. So somebody who's had cirrhosis for 10 years has got somewhere between a 15 and a 40% chance of liver cancer. All of the medical legal cases that I've personally been invited to uh, testify on have been for missed hepatocellular carcinoma in patients with cirrhosis. So the good news is there are these new technologies. So this is transient elastography or fiber scan. The machine costs about $100,000. There are a couple of vendors, but about 90% uh, is this thing that's called uh, fiber scan. Uh, totally painless. It's a probe you hold against uh, the ribs or between the ribs, and you feel this gentle pulsing. And it can measure the speed with which the ultrasound waves go through the liver. It interrogates about one cubic centimeter of the liver. And it's very good at defining patients or identifying patients who don't have cirrhosis. If you have less than eight kilopascals of liver stiffness, that patient has no reason uh, for further work. They, they have a high, highly unlikely setting for cirrhosis. About of 148 patients who had the transit elastography and a biopsy performed, it called it correctly 143 out of 148 times. It's a very good test for excluding cirrhosis. Now, there's a, a relatively new thing, actually, it came out about the same time, and it's an adaptation of standard uh, magnetic resonance, and it's uh, magnetic resonance elastography. You put a drum over the patient's uh, ribcage, and it's attached by uh, Velcro, and this is about the size of it. And it beats at 60 beats per second. And the basic principle is uh, that something transmits a wave according to its stiffness. So if I push this podium, it moves immediately on the other side because it's stiff, it's made of wood. 
Uh, if I was to do this to a water uh, a balloon or to a marshmallow, it would take a while for that wave to move through. And that's the exact principle uh, that uh, elastography of the liver uh, is measuring. So it beats at 60 beats uh, per second. And those waves can be measured in terms of the speed as they move through uh, the liver. And the speed of those waves are translated into a measure of stiffness. The output is kilopascals. It's important to bear in mind that the range is totally different than for the ultrasound-based device. So here, the upper limit of normal is three kilopascals compared to the ultrasound device, which is uh, eight kilopascals. And this is the first study to uh, look at patients who had simultaneous uh, biopsy. And everyone who had liver stiffness less than three uh, had essentially a normal liver. So if you have an MRE and a uh, liver stiffness of less than three, there's no reason to work that patient up in terms of assessing severity of disease. It's a little bit less linear, uh, but still significantly different as you move up the stiffness range. There's now thousands of patients who've had simultaneous uh, procedures, multiple studies across multiple countries and uh, three different continents. They all find essentially the, the versions of that same graphic that I just showed you. It's a very uh, reliable test. The cost of MR elastography, and there are several at sites uh, in New York, including uh, from uh, Columbia and uh, from, from Cornell. Uh, it's about $2,000 per test at the high end. It can be as low as 500. Uh, and for the transient elastography, the ultrasound-based device, it's about 300 to $400 uh, per test. The advantage of the transient elastography, the ultrasound-based device, is it's point of care. You, get, you can get the results in clinic uh, if you're lucky to work with uh, a liver center that has one uh, in the outpatient setting. You can literally wheel it around to a patient's room and, and get it done in real time. Not only does this predict, or does uh, either measurements of liver stiffness uh, predict liver fibrosis, it also predicts outcomes, clinical outcomes. This is a study by Sumit Asrani from uh, Baylor Medical Center in Dallas, where it looked at liver stiffness and frequency of hepatic decompensation. And the stiffer your liver, uh, the more likely you were to decompensate, even with relatively short periods uh, of follow-up. So it's an important test clinically as well. So these are uh, the ASOD guidelines for how to interpret elastography currently. So uh, less than three, uh, the biopsy not required, as, it, as we uh, saw with those data. Those patients just don't have anything important going on. Between three and five, consider a biopsy if you have some uh, interest in knowing. And greater than five, uh, that, those patients probably have at least stage three disease. And you could treat them as if they have uh, cirrhosis. It would not be an unreasonable thing to do. So what's the natural history? This is a question every patient that I've seen with cirrhosis for the first time uh, will ask. And the first thing, are they compensated uh, or not? So a quick question for you. Uh, the most common cause of death in patients with compensated cirrhosis, so no manifestation of portal hypertension, is one, variceal bleeding, two, hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, three, hepatic encephalopathy, or four, cardiovascular disease. Very good. So cardiovascular disease is the, is the correct answer. It's uh, by a substantial margin uh, as well. So it's tremendously variable between patients according to the clinical setting. So somebody uh, who has cirrhosis overall has a life expectancy of about 9 to 12 years, uh, with liver cancer uh, being an important consideration. But it's also very MELD score dependent. And MELD score is this combination of creatinine, bilirubin, and prothrombin time. Albumin is also a uh, predictor. A normal serum albumin is an, uh, a, strongly, uh, a strong predictive factor for not dying of complications of cirrhosis. If you do have compensated cirrhosis uh, biopsy as needed, as we just discussed, 
uh, screening for varices. Uh, everyone should have an, an endoscopy at initial diagnosis. Uh, and if they have large varices, they can be treated by a couple of methods. If they have small varices, repeat the, the procedure in one or two years. You can just refer these patients to a gastroenterologist who will be thrilled at the prospect uh, of, a, of an upper endoscopy. Uh, and no varices, repeat the procedure in two to three years. Screening for liver cancer, all the major medical societies agree it's uh, an ultrasound every six months. Uh, I would say adding alpha-fetoprotein is, is a good idea for this, although the ASLD is a little bit on the fence about alpha-fetoprotein. I think most hepatologists, when I say most, I'm going to say 98% of us uh, would add alpha-fetoprotein. Uh, stopping alcohol, and then, of course, do the right vaccinations. Medicare adjusts its payments to providers according to how well they vaccinate for hepatitis A and B in the context of uh, liver disease. And then lifestyle changes. So these are some of the lifestyle changes, and this is from a, a paper in, the, uh, in JAMA. If you smoke more than a pack a day, a threefold increase likelihood uh, of developing uh, cirrhosis. And if you consume three or more alcoholic drinks, 21 times more likely, other than shooting yourself in the head, there are very few things you can do to accelerate your demise than drinking heavily if you already have uh, liver disease. BMI greater than 30, uh, 1.6-fold uh, hazard ratio for uh, developing cirrhosis. This is a, a very pleasant surprise. Let me just go back from break for all of us. Coffee, one of the most reproducible findings over the last five years has been the benefit of coffee consumption for preventing cirrhosis. Uh, the major medical societies, the American Gastroenterology Association, the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, the European Association have all come out in, a, in position statements in one form or another and have said if this was a drug, we would prescribe it. And it was a nice dose effect. So three or more cups, drip-filtered, caffeinated coffee a day, highly protective. And the magnitude here in this multivariate analysis, four cups a day, 80% reduction in likelihood uh, of cirrhosis. It's tremendous. It's different for non-alcoholic disease, but it's still a 30% reduction. There are 500 clinical trials in clintrials.gov currently underway for fatty liver disease. If any of them were to come close to these effects, they would be blockbuster uh, drugs. This is a New England Journal study. It's not just good for the liver, but all-cause mortality for 600,000 patients followed for 5 million years. You just live longer for, if you drink enough coffee, and you're awake for more of it uh, than if you didn't. 12% overall in multivariate analysis reduction uh, in mortality. Now, the good news is we need no encouraging. Uh, the, the only thing that's preventing this curve continuing, and right now the number is actually 230,000 for 2017. I checked just a few minutes ago. It's actually not enough space between Starbucks shops to continue this trend, I think, indefinitely. Cirrhosis uh, has different manifestations which have important implications for survival. So a patient with compensated cirrhosis overall, we said nine to 12 years, if you've had any of these manifestations here, so complications that define portal hypertension, on average, those patients only live uh, two years. If you have hepatopulmonary syndrome, which is this hypoxic vasodilator uh, form of shunting, 10-month uh, survival. If you have type 1 renal insufficiency with uh, liver disease, less than six weeks uh, survival. So it's a tremendously uh, different uh, prognosis according to their presentation. 
what do patients die from? Well, the most common cause to die are reasons to die if you have liver disease uh, as a complication of liver disease. So we said uh, cardiovascular disease is the most common overall, but for decompensated liver disease, uh, it's infection. So infection is by far the most common cause of death for patients who have decompensated uh, liver disease. And there are many studies showing exactly this. The average uh, mortality risk is around uh, threefold for patients who develop uh, a treated infection as part of their uh, liver disease. And the MELD score is this, again, this combination of these three findings now modified by sodium. And this looks at the survival, the mortality per 1,000 patients without transplant in blue and with transplant in the yellow. And what you'll see is that at a MELD score of 15, the columns become of the same height. That means that at 15 and above, there's a survival benefit to liver transplantation. So the mortality rate without transplantation, the blue columns continues to go up, or with transplant, uh, the mortality risk uh, flattens. So somebody with a MELD score of 10 to 15, that's about the level at which you should refer to a transplant center or to a hepatologist. So another question, not as easy as the first two. We're just warming up through the postprandial hypoglycemia. Now everyone's firing on all our cylinders. Which of the following vaccines is contraindicated in cirrhosis? Uh, MMR, typhoid, oral polio vaccine, uh, BCG, or none of the above? Which is contraindicated? Very good. None of the above is the uh, correct answer. All of these vaccines are uh, not just not contraindicated, they're possibly more important in patients with uh, cirrhosis who are, to some degree, immunocompromised. So these are the official uh, guidelines for uh, immunization. So pneumococcal influenza and tetanus vaccines are mandatory. A and B vaccine, these are one of the uh, two of the uh, CMS uh, payment criteria. Uh, risk of inadequate antibody response is associated with disease severity, so check antibody levels in somebody with cirrhosis to make sure they've responded to A or B. And live attenuated vaccines are not contraindicated in people with compensated uh, cirrhosis. So another question quickly. So a 55-year-old uh, woman uh, with a body mass index of 35, so class 1 obesity, nearly class 2, uh, has a total serum cholesterol of 382 milligrams, LDL's also uh, elevated. She's tried dieting for three months. Transaminase is about twice upper limit of normal. Ultrasound shows uh, fatty liver and possible uh, cirrhosis. Uh, clinically well compensated, she asks about statins. So very marked dyslipidemia, mild transaminase elevations. What's the correct advice to this patient? Avoid statins. Uh, start statins and monitor the transaminases, initiate the statins and check the transaminases two, six, and three months, and then six months, initiate the statins and watch for myalgias uh, and muscle weakness, or statins if liver biopsy does not show cirrhosis. And there are a lot of patients like this, it's a very common consultation in the hospital and in clinic. You know, well, the correct answer is to go ahead and initiate the statins and watch for myalgias and muscle weakness. You do not need to recheck the transaminases unless you wish to for some other purpose. Now, this is part of the reason why. Uh, this is a study looking at the risk of hepatotoxicity uh, in patients who started off uh, clinical trials with a statin, uh, who started off baseline 
normal transaminases versus abnormal at baseline. And if you look at what happened while they were on therapy, the lowest frequency of uh, outcomes was in patients. Uh, the, the normal ALT uh, was, uh, let me see, so statins, the lowest frequency of abnormal ALTs was in statins compared to people uh, who had no statins. So statins, if anything, were slightly protective compared to uh, no statins. And then there's a randomized controlled study with pravastatin, uh, where people at baseline were uh, comparable, 160 in each arm, and the number of transaminase elevations, 7.5% versus 12.5%. Almost all of this would have been fatty liver disease. The Food and Drug Administration has reviewed this in detail and find no compelling cases of uh, statin-associated liver failure or severe hepatotoxicity. So statins are fine in patients with uh, cirrhosis, particularly bearing in mind the most common cause of death is cardiovascular uh, disease. So these are the official uh, recommendations now from the Joint Commission. And that's the presence of chronic liver disease in child's acerosis should not be considered a contraindication to uh, statin use as an important consideration. So pharmacotherapy for other things, painkillers are important. Uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen up to two grams per day is just fine. I think in patients with compensated cirrhosis, avoid the non-steroidals because of the effect on the kidneys in these patients. Uh, of the antibiotics, I'm not even going to insult an infectious disease group by uh, bringing that up. Uh, oral hypoglycemic agents if cirrhosis is compensated, insulin if uh, decompensated. Uh, nutrition. Now, most patients with uh, cirrhosis actually have sarcopenia, and then you have a patient with decompensated disease. The ascites fluid that you see is not just uh, saline, of course. It's a mixture of proteins, primarily albumin as well. It's a protein-wasting uh, and fat-wasting state. Somebody who goes to sleep with cirrhosis, by the time they wake up eight hours later, is burning uh, fat and protein for 75% of the calories. Without cirrhosis, uh, all of us in this room would have to not eat for three days to have the same proportion of uh, fat and protein uh, as our calorie source. So protein-calorie malnutrition is common. Be aware of it. Frequent uh, meals, so six meals per day can help. So we get people to have milk and maybe a cookie before they go to bed, and then something as soon as they get up as well. You can abrogate most of the effects of protein-calorie malnutrition with this sort of approach. Uh, bedtime snacks, that are important. And fat-soluble uh, vitamins as well as zinc, uh, and then replace them uh, if, they're, if they're low. So I check vitamin A, D, E, and zinc level in all new uh, cirrhotic patients. Fatigue is very common, very hard to deal with. I want to make sure that you're not uh, missing uh, borderline or stage one hepatic encephalopathy. And then other things, thyroid disease and anemia, of course. No medical therapy for spe the specific fatigue associated with uh, cirrhosis. They run very high levels of glucagon, which uh, increases your metabolic rate. Uh, whether this contributes to the fatigue, which is so common in cirrhosis, is really not known. Depression, of course, very common. SSRIs, we like uh, mirtazapine uh, in our clinic. It seems to be quite well tolerated in patients with uh, cirrhosis. Muscle cramps can be uh, an awful thing for patients to uh, deal with because they're often on diuretics and they struggle with dehydration and electrolyte disturbances. We used to give uh, quinine uh, for this, which is now withdrawn by the FDA. You can still get something approaching a dose by having patients drink tonic water. And of course, there's sugar-free tonic water. and There's nothing wrong with that. There's no FDA uh, uh, recommendation not to use that. So I suggest that patients consider having a tonic water to treat their cramps. Um, there's no other pharmacotherapy uh, available, and antioxidants are totally ineffective. 
And finally, uh, sexual dysfunction. This is very common in patients uh, with cirrhosis, with or without complications of the disease. About 40% of patients in a prospective study describe uh, erectile dysfunction. Uh, Sildenafil was studied formally in patients with cirrhosis and found to be safe in a relatively small number uh, of patients. So patients are going to do it whether uh, you say they can or not. So it's nice that it's been studied and seems to be safe in compensated uh, disease. And finally, uh, transplantation is something patients consider to be a catastrophic uh, event. Uh, this is one of our patients uh, who actually had his third liver transplant. His wife was pregnant with this child during his most recent one. And here he is in North Carolina saying thank you for uh, the liver. So even after multiple transplants, if you're lucky, it can go extremely well. There are special forces uh, officers who go back to serve towards the duty following transplant. Uh, the previous Winter Olympics, uh, bronze medalist in the snowboard uh, is uh, uh, Krug, uh, who's a liver transplant a recipient for PSC. So I think it's important for patients to know in that worst case scenario, we do have potentially a, a good out as well. So thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to any questions that you have. Thanks so much, Mike. That was fantastic. Uh, I'm always learning from you, uh, and that was no exception. So uh, now you get a chance to ask questions. Yeah, I warn you, it will take you a lot longer to get responses from your community hepatologist than right now, so this is your shot. Um, actually, before we start, maybe we should see, can all the medical students stand up again? Oh, what happened? <laughs> I knew that's what would happen. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. <laughs> All right, so one of the things, you know, that's a fantastic point about the statins. Are there, are there any, what medications are not safe for, like, because every, every medication in the, in the FTA, you know, package insert says, don't use in people with liver, with cirrhosis and liver, or, or check with the hepatologist. So, so what other ones should we know are, are fine? And, and which, you already said the non-steroidals are on the bad list. Right. What else is on the bad list? So I throw aspirin in with that as well, which I worry about. Uh, I think the, the biggest uh, other things that we see with drug-induced liver injury, I would say were antibiotics, particularly the clavulanates, uh, worry me a bit. Uh, and then I would say herbal supplements. It, it's, uh, it's uh, I think, standard medications have become so expensive and, and traditional healthcare has that people have been pushed a little bit towards these non-traditional therapies. I'm seeing more and more patients with things like valerian roots, uh, Jamaican tea, uh, there's green tea extract. All of these are well-defined hepatotoxic agents. What are the, uh, thanks. Uh, what's your uh, usual approach to patients that are decompensated with anemia? Uh, do you, let's say their melt is less than 15, they're anemic. Uh, is, there a, is that affect your, your uh, choice of hep C regimens? No, so obviously ribavirin would be uh, an issue. Uh, beyond that though, uh, transfusing patients with portal hypertension is a concern. So we know from uh, treating patients with uh, variceal bleeding or, or uh, other forms of um, portal hypertensive bleeding, that if you have a hemoglobin above 7.5 grams per deciliter, it's harder to stop the bleeding. So we typically won't transfuse for a hemoglobin uh, that's uh, in, in a hemodynamically stable patient of uh, less than uh, 8, greater than 8, beg your pardon. You're talking faster than I can read, sorry. Um, anyone that wants to come to the mic, uh, please do. And um, um, 
how likely, okay, there, there's some issues on, so let's say you, you diagnose uh, cirrhosis by, by any method. So, so then you have your, your um, upper GI um, and your ultrasound, or you need to rule out cancer and you need to rule out varices. The, the, um, do you need to do the, the upper GI before you start treatment? Or can you do that sort of any time? How urgent is the upper GI for varices? Yes, it's a great question. And the reason is that if you're thinking of using a protease inhibitor, you really should know if your patient has cirrhosis, if they have any form of decompensation. So child's acerosis, you treat them the same as other patients in terms of your uh, choices, more or less. But for decompensated cirrhosis, it really has to be a sofosbuvir-based regimen, either with the dipasphere or velpatosphere or declatosphere. Nothing else has been studied. So we know the efficacy and the safety of these agents, not of the protease inhibitors. Conversely, we know that the protease inhibitors can be hepatotoxic. So there are uh, well-described cases of liver decompensation. So if you have somebody who you're not sure uh, they have cirrhosis and you're worried, are they decompensated or not, I think the endoscopy might be performed before you start therapy. Thanks. So this is not a, a hepatology-specific question, but I know you know the answer. So wh what about a patient antibody-positive, hep C viral load or RNA-negative? Uh, how do you, are you sure that they don't have chronic infection? Uh, how, how do you become sure? What, what do you say to them? So no, no history of treatment. Sorry, treatment I Treatment-naive, hep C antibody-positive, PCR-negative. So we know from several different sources that that's almost always a true uh, negative. So those patients are highly unlikely. But having said that, we all have patients, and I have a patient who's reinfected himself three times through a drug injection. It doesn't protect you. It's not like a vaccine for B, where if you have surface antibody, you won't get hepatitis B infection. There's no protective effect of a hepatitis C antibody. So they're not currently infected, and if they have no exposure, Exposure, they're more than 99% likely not to be, uh, to have infection in the future, but they're certainly not protected from it either. Okay, great. We're, we just got a new stack. While I'm reading this, maybe the, you could tell us that some, someone's interested in whether or not there's any evidence of whether the French roast is better than the Pikes Peak or, or yeah. their equivalent. Yeah. So it's interesting. So of all living creatures, and that includes funguses, bacteria, viruses, it turns out the only one that flies, floats, or crawls along the earth that seeks caffeine is us. It turns out no other creature does that. It's lethal to bacteria, to funguses, to many viruses, et cetera. Uh, so the more caffeine you have in it, probably the better, but caffeine's not the only thing. When you heat caffeine, you get these coffee polyphenols that we're now learning in animal studies are the effective agents. So they defat the liver, they deactivate all the machinery of de novo lipogenesis, and they bind to the alpha-2 uh, adenosine receptor, which is what we think drives the antifibrotic effect. So caffeine is important, but even decaffeinated coffees have produced these polyphenols. So. Uh, Having said that, Arabica, when you, you see uh, adverts for Arabica coffee, that's typically a lower caffeinated form, and Robusta is the stronger caffeinated. So Robusta is probably better than the Arabica, which is a bit better than the decaf. So the <laughs> Thank you for stalling. I've now read Thank the you. rest of them. That was, that was very well done. <laughs> you compare okay. me with a Starbucks card. <laughs> that was really spectacular. Um, all right, so uh, after curing a cirrhotic patient, what, what, what about, do you have to repeat the upper GI? Do you have to repeat uh, ultrasounds? What about that kind of stuff? 
you just, there was an NIH-sponsored study called HALT-C, and now we have this clinical trials database, which the companies have very kindly shared with, with our group. Uh, and we know that the frequency of liver cancer declines following treatment, the frequency of decompensation drops, need for liver transplant drops, but it doesn't go away. So currently, the guidelines that are referred to, the HCV guidelines, uh, in addition to the major societies, EASL, ASLD, all say don't change your screening uh, follow-up. So right now, continue your six-monthly ultrasounds and your two to three yearly or yearly, depending on what you find, upper endoscopies. Milk vessel, question mark. So milk thistle is uh, silymarin, which is spelled S-I-L-Y-M-A-R-I-N. I remember when the clinical trial was done uh, by the NIH to look for a benefit, 300 patients in each arm, silymarin versus none. And I remember when somebody came to the microphone and said it needed an extra L because it was, it was totally ineffective, but it was harmless. So Shoseiko toe and silymarin or milk thistle, harmless, but of no benefit. In a patient with decompensating cirrhosis whose ascites is not controlled by diuretics diet, uh, how often do you do paracentesis? That's a tough one. Yeah, it is really ad hoc. It's, it's not a, a risk-free procedure. I've had patients die from uh, bleeding post-paracentesis. I consider it more dangerous than a liver biopsy for which the mortality is around 1 in 12,000. Uh, so really, I'm I, I guided by the patient or by symptoms. Somebody with fever, pain, decompensation with ascites has to have it tapped. Uh, otherwise, the patient's uncomfortable enough. And we, we have patients who are frequent flyers. They have standing orders for uh, albumin following large volume paracentesis. Uh, how about, there's, there's evidence for uh, more fatty liver in HIV-positive mm -hmm. patients. Do you want to say anything about, uh, there's also some evidence against it. What, what's your feeling on that? So there's a heart-associated fatty liver, uh, which we're seeing less and less of as therapy has evolved. But it's interesting, the uh, interaction between academia, uh, the FDA, and pharma is driven by a group called the Liver Forum, which grew out of the desire to accelerate drug development for HIV. So we benefit directly from what all of you have done in working with FDA uh, and pharma. Uh, but fatty liver, uh, in and of, as a complication of HIV, typically drug-related if somebody has, doesn't have a BMI of over 30. Fantastic. Last question was about hepatitis A and B vaccinations for cirrhotics. Yeah. And so they should have it, and you should check the antibody if they have cirrhosis. Many patients, uh, not many, a, a, a fair enough number do. And now the, the recommendation is to, of course, to repeat if they're negative. And there are some, uh, if you have access to an academic center, they may have a trial for a couple of vaccines that are thought to be able to convert non-responders to, uh, to responders. Hepatitis A is lethal if you have uh, hepatitis C or cirrhosis. You may uh, have been aware in the news right now, 19 deaths in San Francisco this year from hepatitis A. I thought that was the last question, but we have two more, and the handwriting's excellent, so we're going to do these. So Hep C, uh, Hep B screening, uh, Kristen got into a little bit before. Anything different in cirrhotics with uh, uh, how you test for hepatitis B? Do you always do DNA tests if they're core positive, that sort of thing? So if, you're, if it's in reference to uh, prior to treatment for hepatitis C, of the 29 cases, two-thirds were in Japan uh, and with a much higher rate. The number of cases in the United States vanishingly small, probably on one hand, certainly two or less hands, I would say. 
Uh, and the, like, how, the, how frequently this would have happened without hepatitis C therapy, entirely unknown because there's no control group. Having said that, everyone should get a surface antigen and a core antibody. If they're surface antigen positive, measure an HBV DNA, and if it's in a detectable range, follow AASOD guidelines for treating hepatitis B. If somebody uh, is negative for surface antigen but positive for core antibody, check the transaminases every four weeks while on therapy and for at least uh, eight weeks following uh, therapy. And the same thing, if the transaminases bump, uh, check a surface antigen, reflex to DNA, and treat appropriately. Okay, this, this question feeds off of what you already talked about with spontaneous clearance, but they're asking if there's an equivalent to an elite controller for HIV, is there an equivalent for hep C? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely there are. There, there are patients who run, and as you get cirrhosis, hepatocyte mass falls, and you tend to get lower levels, but there are also patients who've had uh, hepatitis C for three decades, and we know this from the Irish women's study. There was an infected pool of rhesus uh, gamma globulin that was given to, I think it was 300 Irish women who were typically in their 20s at the time of birth when they were given it to protect the child. Uh, and they've now been followed in a New England Journal paper, only about 5% of those women who are now 20, 30 years plus out from the original infection with all genotype 1B for hepatitis C, only about 5 or so percent have cirrhosis. So these are typically thin uh, women. They didn't drink very much on average, and they love coffee, I think. That was the <laughs> thing. Good coffee, and, and not that much Guinness. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> We are going to transition. I know, yes, there were about five questions on, on blood markers of liver fibrosis, but that's the first case, so I'm going to just roll all those questions into the first case. Are you, are you going to be able to stay for the case? Oh, you do have to run your plane. Okay. Well, do you want to say something about um, blood markers of liver fibrosis? Yes, the, the blood markers is, is interesting. So uh, I was at Mayo Clinic for 20 years, and the year that I, that I left, uh, we asked, there were 79 of us, 20 of which were pure hepatologists, and we suddenly asked how many of us had ever ordered any of the blood markers, so fiber test, uh, ELF, uh, all these different markers. Not one of us had ordered any of the tests ever, okay? And that points to the utility of it. So now with the uh, ultrasound, the transit elastography, and MRE, I think they're not really that helpful. Having said that, if you did order one, the ELF uh, is the best. You can interpret the results yourself. If you get something like the fiber test, the fiber shore, you need a credit card to get it. It's sort of a secret formula. I hate anything secret in medicine. Uh, so I generally discourage it. I think you're better off with a more physical test, like an imaging test. Okay, terrific. Thanks Thank very much, Mike. <laughs> Thanks a lot.